Escape from Plan A. Hey, welcome to uh, Escape from Plan A. Uh, another episode uh, on a uh, what day is it today? Thursday. Thursday. The, the, the oh, does just... it? It doesn't matter. Okay, it's a doesn't day. Doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. It's 2020. There's no days left. Um, oh, you know what today is? Is Zong Chiu Jie. That's right. Yeah, second most important holiday in all of the uh, sinosphere. Yeah. Um, Actually, I mean, I just came back from my mom's house. We, um, it's Chuseok in Korean. Yeah. Did you eat well? I did. Yeah. Um, I'm foregoing a din- I'm foregoing a family dinner as we speak because I was like, no, I'm gonna, I got to do this pod tonight. Uh, so yeah, so, um, I have a special guest today. We've been doing, uh, special guests and stuff. Uh, Hailing Chen is with us. Hailing Chen, uh, is, uh, well, why don't, Hailing, why don't you, uh, just sort of like introduce yourself and, uh, maybe talk a little bit about your background and also, uh, tell us a little bit more about your candidacy where uh, you, what you're running for uh, city council, uh, in New York city. Uh, representing Flushing. And so, uh, you know, I got your name from our friend Amanda, who said that, you know, you have a really interesting background, have a really interesting perspective on things. And I thought, you know, we, in this pod, we talk a lot about, you know, getting politically activated and things like that. And I thought that that was really interesting that someone uh, as young as you and um, with your background thought, you know what, this is, this is the time I'm going to throw in. So I just wanted to know more about you and sort of like what got you, uh, you know, what made you decide to uh, go out there and 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 participate? Thank you, Ting, uh, Jessica. Um, so my name is Hayden Chen. I, I came to the uh, United States at 13 years old. I attended, uh, attended high schools and college uh, in Queens. Um, you know, I, I'm a union organizer. I'm 1.5 generation immigrant. Um, so I, you know, the reason that I'm running is because, you know, we have suffered so much, uh, you know, financially, mentally, you know, during this pandemic. And I have seen so many unfairness, uh, in my years of organizing Uber driver in New York. Um, so I think it's a time for us to step out and to give a voice for the voiceness. Uh, I have a very interesting background because I was educated in China and also educated in United States. Um, so I, you know, I think I'm able to build a bridge between a um, Oriental cultures and you know American cultures, and we're able to bridge the understanding between the two kind of uh, two hemisphere. Um, so I, <clears throat> yeah. So uh, let me explain what one point five generation immigrant is. So it's usually referring to people who came as a teenager and who has the pay ones who came to a United States um, as a first generation immigrant. And, you know, they, uh, their family or their kids arrived to America uh, later uh, to reunite with the, uh, with the father and pay ones or mothers. So that's my uh, little background. Back to your thing. Yeah. Um, what I what I'm really interested in is, you know, 
this, you know, they keep talking about 2020 and the effects of this pandemic and, and, and the economic effects of it as, as, as a current, as sort of like dividing the world into two. And, you know, the media is very representative, I think, of the, the more protected class, right? And so I think we talk, uh, I think the media talks about the, the existence of there being, uh, you know, another world, so to speak, in, in terms of like how this thing is affecting working people. But it's never really written by working people, right? It's always like, you know, someone who works for the New York Times or someone who works for CNN and who's commenting on it or an economist who's commenting on this. And, you know, when I saw your uh, your background as an as a labor organizer and also as a worker, I think you've you're also you've also driven for Uber, things like that. Right. Uh, that you would have a maybe a very different perspective and experience as to like how this pandemic has really been affecting people. And so I wanted to know just like, what do you see? Like what is happening uh, in in New York? Like with immigrant communities, with, you know, working immigrants, what's happening in Flushing, like on the ground? Um, is it, you know, I, I, I that's a very open-ended question, but is, you know, are you seeing something really horribly happen that prompted you to say, you know, I'm going to throw into the ring? Yeah, thank you, Ting. Um, I think, I don't know where to start with, but uh, let me give you an example. Uh, our community has received the minimum passport uh, application for the PPP for, you know, unemployment benefit because simply people don't have access to those. And that's a very sad reality all across the United States that we don't have, you know, a government where they do the outreach in the language that people speak. They do the PPP being the the small business loan program that that Congress had passed back in like yeah March. the paycheck protection so mm-hmm. okay. yeah it's a paycheck protection program and a lot of the small business owner they do not simply do not know about how to apply for the uh, uh, PPP and they well, I also heard I also heard that seventy percent of Asian business owners were rejected from PPP even uh the ones who had applied. It was like 90% rejection rate for Black and Latino business owners and 70% rejection rate for Asian. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can personally attest to that. Um, I mean, we've covered it in previous previous pods, so we don't necessarily need to go into it, but it was a travesty from top to bottom. I mean, that it was it was all funneled through the private banks. So in order to get uh, in order to get access to it means you have to deal with all all that bullshit just to get access to this money. Um, it was it was it was it was horrific so it's things like like it's simply things like it can be as simple as not having a firm grasp on english you should see these forms that and these hoops that these banks made you jump through if you don't have if you don't have institutional knowledge on how to navigate these systems you're screwed and this is just this is not even step one this is step zero to get to step one in a position to to apply uh, and that you have to go through private bankers, you have to see people, they have to evaluate your business. Um, it just compounds the the inequity at every step. And and Haileen, are we talking about like small businesses, uh, you know, say in, in your district in Flushing, uh, like what, like restaurants, uh, you know, other, other retail type businesses, 
that are trying to offset the, you know, a radical drop in, you know, foot traffic in, in income, that kind of thing? Yes, correct. Um, even before the pandemic happened, even before the lockdown of New York, uh, New York State in March, the business in Flushing is already suffers because people, you know, have the rumor that, you know, um, uh, you know, Chinese uh, came from overseas, you know, kind of go into uh, Flushing and Flushing ha- already have the infection. You know, people were afraid of going to the Chinatown and Flushing is considered as one of the biggest Chinatown in New York cities. So there was business were already affected, you know, back in the January. Uh, when this, you know, the news of pandemic or and the news of the right. virus comes up, so we have been talking about ten months of a uh, nine or ten months of impact, and you know a lot of people are just suffering, and you know small business owners just cannot afford, and you know sometimes they have to make uh, make the decision to drop off, uh, to lay off the uh, workers, and the worker are gonna be in this case they're gonna be, suffer the most. And most of these workers, immigrant workers who work in low-wage job, non-union nice job, uh, they are the first one to get impacted, not just financially, but sometimes physically as well. Because you have seen those jobs, they have to be done in real person. People cannot do this remotely. You know, just uh, for example, as an Uber driver, they don't have the luxury to work from home because they need someone to drive the car. And when they are driving, when they are out there and driving the car, they are exposing themselves to the virus. And that's why we see a much higher percentage of uh, infection rate in the a community of colors, in the community of working peoples, right? And those are really serious issues that we are talking about. And while their health is still in threat, and as we said before, you know, this institutional kind of procedure that immigrant community is not familiar with are getting the situation even worse. And we have seen the second wave of economic recession in just within 12 years. And who are the most, in, uh, who are small, uh, being impacted is the immigrant community, is the millennials, who just started and just graduated from the college carrying the student loans and they're just trying to make a living and now their second recession hit from home and how are they able to pay off their student loans and how are they able to have a decent, nice job that's going to guarantee them to have a nice family, to, to raise the family, to have a house of their own and to to pay off their student loan and these are the questions that still we are still waiting for the answer you know from the governments right and 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 those are you know part of the reason that you know i I think we need to have a policy that should be working for everyone's do you do you um do you find that you know and, and i've spoken like the few times I've taken Uber, you know, I've spoken with the drivers about what's going on and kind of how they feel about it. And I've noticed that like people are aware this time of the system not working for them. And I feel like a palpable sense of frustration and maybe anger uh, among people. But, you know, it's all anecdotal, right? It's the few people that I've spoken to. And 
I can tell like just from your campaign website, which we'll link in the show notes, uh, you know, you're out there talking to a lot of people, it seems a lot more than, than me. Uh, and you might have a better sense of like how people, uh, you know, out there in the world, in our world, really feel. Do you feel that people this time around have have they reached a, a breaking point? Have they have or are, are, do you think people are ready to, to demand something here or um, or, or or do you think people are more just lost and uh, sort of saying oh, nothing can be done? How do you what, what do you think the the mood of the of people are? So from my experience, I think people are definitely very angry, people very frustrated. But sometimes the immigrants, they actually don't speak out, you know, their pain, you know, in themselves. They feel that, you know, this is part of life, you know, it's hard life. You know, um, I think I think emotionally people have enough of, you know, uh, whatever that's going on, you know, you know, in this country, in the cities, we have working people who just raising to the balance and we have so many people out of, uh, you know, their residence. And people are very angry about that. Um, and in terms of kind of, you know, emotionally, I think, you know, that that's why we have this uh, wellness uh, kind of uh, teens in Independent Driver Guild to kind of resolve some of the mental kind of uh, mental health issues uh, with uh, Uber drivers. And people are definitely angry. Uh, but should we, you know, you know, kind of cultivate that and making sure that, you know, uh, people are able to speak out for themselves. You know, that's that's a question that me as an organizer have always asked. You know, we need to demand more. In fact, that we don't even have a sufficient system that's looking after the immigrant community, after community of uh, colors. And that's what I'm fighting for. Yeah, I mean, the in the past few weeks, we've seen, uh, you know, another group, the um, yellow cab drivers, uh, you know, staging protests around the city, blocking, um, you know, the bridges in protest, uh, demanding, uh, I think, a measure of debt forgiveness because of a combination of things, obviously a combination of uh, the pandemic and the lockdown, but also the huge amounts of debt that they ran up you know, pro, you know, uh, you know, a few years ago, sort of prior to the wave of Uber coming into the city, people paying like a million dollars for, uh, you know, a taxi medallion. And I feel like I was seeing these cab drivers, you know, just really at, at a breaking point. I know that there was a lot of problem. There was, you know, we had a, a spate of suicides, uh, you know, really tough, heavy issues. Uh, when it came to that, we're talking about massive amounts of debt that, uh, you know, that they had shouldered, followed by a precipitous drop in earning. And there's nothing they can do. So they've just they've been forced to organize. And I don't know, it seems like now it's I don't know if they've how do you if you're familiar with those protests. And if I, I know there's they're probably going to meet with some measure of success in terms of there being debt forgiveness. I don't know. I hope I hope that's the case. But what is the demand here? Does there do you think there is a clear vision for what needs to be done? And what is your like, is there a central thing that people want uh, in the form of it be it, um, you know, uh, more government aid, financial help, financial assistance until the end of the lockdown? Uh, what, what do people need? 
I mean, that was a, that is a long story. Okay, um, I think a, we have a medallion that's worth a million dollars was definitely a price gouging, resulted by the greedy of uh, bankers, greedy of brokers, oh for sure, and yeah, the greedy absolutely. of our governments, because you know everyone was the uh, uh, gainers except the driver who's bringing uh, buying the medallion. It was definitely overpriced. And I think the demand, it's, you know, it's good. You know, the, the yellow cab driver demanding their loan to be forgiven. I think that's, a you know, um, a, a good reason. I believe New York State, uh, what do you call, uh, attorney, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, chief attorney actually brought out the, uh, a lawsuit against city of New York for, uh, for knowing the flaw that's in the industry uh, and uh, and did not stop it and profit from those transactions. So every single time a transaction happens, everybody is gain, uh, gaining the money except the drivers. And they knew those drivers were people who were never able to pay back a million dollar loan. But they are creating such fantasy or, you know, and, and telling people this medallion is the price of medallion only going to rise. Just like a star market, you know, and, and bubble can burst. But before bubble burst, everyone gonna tell you that tomorrow you're gonna see the price going higher, and you can sell this to the other driver. But suddenly, when Abe's a uh, company like Uber, they come along, everything change, and now they are like a stock. Uh, you you know, during the whole process, and ultimately, we have so much manipulation. And it comes down to the people who, uh, who has the least have to to bear, you know, right. and and going through the bankruptcy, going through the suicidal wave, and and those people are suffer a lot. And I think the problem here is not to blame, um, you know, whether yellow driver blame Uber driver, Uber driver blame yellow drivers. They are all the same. We are in the same situations. We are being told and we are being chipped on and we need to stay there together and we should not having people telling us the story to dividing the working people. We are not to blame. Uh, to blame is exploitation, uh, uh, institutional exploitation and the failure and incompetence of our government to making sure that our uh, working people are protected. That's why we need to rise a rule that work for peoples and uh, work for the working majorities and and for all, everyone. How do you think we get there uh, when we're dealing with something like a lockdown? Uh, that's that's sort of out of the control of 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 you know the government. Um, I mean, it would be great if we could open everything back up, but like number one is that you know we've got um, COVID, and then number two is. I don't know if people are necessarily going to, you know, just pick up, uh, you know, the, the the same amount of activity that they were before. So in the meantime, like what 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 needs to be done? Do you think? Because in my opinion, it's like, you know, we, you see that the government is able to immediately respond to the needs of something like a financial market, or respond to the needs of you know, uh, propping up stock prices, propping up. Uh, financial institutions, uh, propping up airlines, for example, to the extent that they can make demands that say, look, if you don't, uh, you know, use state resources to keep us afloat, 
we're going to we're going to crater the economy but it seems like the same doesn't it seems to me like the same doesn't apply to workers and working families because they're just not putting up a threat right like there is no labor or i don't know like who represents workers who's out there you know on the national scene uh you know making a loud threat or you know demanding that something be done otherwise right and so is is that the nature of organization you think like is that what we need is more um you know polit more politicians and more leaders that are sort of directly representing interests of working people because uh, as far as i can tell there's no there's no especially at past a certain point looking at the uh, higher tiers of the state level and definitely at the federal government there's nobody i don't i don't really see any anybody out there that's that's you know directly representing working people yeah, if I could jump in for a second, I think uh, to tag along with uh, what you're saying, Teen, uh, what I'm seeing is, a, is is actually a little disturbing um, because it seems like every time there is a, a call to action on behalf of the working class uh, workers, um, there seems to be there, there's there's a um, there's an overtone uh, that this is a charity. This is a, this is a matter of charity or at best morality. Like we should do this because it's, quote, the right thing to do. Um, there isn't. And um there isn't allowed to be any teeth behind the demand. I guess this is what you're saying, right? The, the threat element of it. Uh, there Exa- is yeah, no, exactly. there's exactly no consciousness that if you like, I mean, this, I mean, what it's saying is if you don't do this on behalf of workers, working families, etc., cetera, um, that will crash everything that sits on top of that foundation. Uh, but we never get to that second. Ha- we never get to that that uh, that second half. It's always couched in terms of, oh, these people are suffering, they're struggling. We should do something for them. So this has a this has a muzzling effect on the efficacy of that message and ultimately what you are able to demand. So uh, yeah, I, th- I think that's right, and I think and I think that it's it's a lack of. Uh, I mean, it's it's it comes down to something pretty simple, right? It's just whether there's enough labor organization to have a unified voice, right? And I guess what I'm saying is like there's just a startling lack of a labor voice here. Like I don't know who's out there, you know, really representing that. I mean, I, I like again, I hear the media talking about this from a sort of detached, objective point of view, where they're like, okay, well, if the we looks like we have a K-shaped recovery and uh, that's not good, we need incomes. Like, yeah, I, we get it. Like, you, you know, there's there's econometric uh, data that they can interpret or whatever. Um, but my interest is really like, how much more can like they, they always leave out the human element. And what I'm interested in is like, you know, because I've seen this happen with the yellow cab drivers, and I'm sure Uber drivers. Um, have reached a similar point is like I don't think that these people necess- the the you know the, the 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 media necessarily is able to take into the account the human dimension of this and people have breaking points and I guess what I'm wondering is like Hyling do you think like people are close to a breaking point where they we just, like something has to happen at this point because I, I I feel for me I live in a little bit of a bubble here. Um, but I'm in, I'm in Queens. I I see, I can see around me. Like, is it, 
do you think it's the case that something has to happen here? Like something's going to definitely have to happen. The, the government can't, you know, as a society, we can't just keep turning a blind eye to these problems uh, in, in terms of the, you know, the, the well-being of the of the working people. Yes, uh, I think we have such a high tolerance to our government's incompetence in the current moment. And I think, you know, this government, this federal government has failed us in every single way possible to make this pandemic continue, to having these gigantic numbers of death rates and the largest, you know, in the world. And this is totally preventable at the beginnings. We could have taken a very proactive uh, measure to making sure that, you know, the virus doesn't, you know, uh, come to this country or even spread, you know, the co uh, community spread so rapidly. You know, we could have take, we could have, have this gut to say that this is the time to shut down our uh, place and this is the best for us so that we don't... Uh, we don't suffer from the January to September. If we could have taken to that little pain in the beginning, this pandemic could possibly or theoretically finish in March or, or, or April so that people don't have to suffer from the second wave of this virus. We, our government does not have the guts to speak out the truth. And then we having, you know, people playing the political game who is not looking out for uh, the working peoples. And those are the real issue here. And, you know, just uh, just having that brief uh, bravery to say and to do the right thing is very difficult in our political environment. And that's why I encourage every single uh, peoples from all across all ages to step out and saying that we need to have our representation real in the government and we need to eliminate the special interest group or super PAC from influencing our elections. We need to have the guts. We need to speak out our real life experience. And that's we need to continue to learn and to grow together and to making sure that we have a diverse voice to make making sure that we have a zero tolerance to our elected official if they are not doing their job. They need to step out of their office. It's simple as that. There's old saying in Chinese. I don't know if I can, you know, translate this uh, accurately. If you are not working for people as a public officials, then you should go back home and sell red potatoes. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I would say that in Chinese, uh, 当官不为民做主,不如回家卖红薯. Uh, Hongsu is one of the very popular potatoes uh, in my hometown, Fujian. Uh, so uh, that is what I'm saying. We need to have this accountability. We need to have this voice for people. And, you know, let's do it. You know, this is our time and it's no ordinary time. When the crisis comes, Right, and we have to work this group together, and we need to have the leadership in place. Uh, you know, a, a strong leadership, a, a leadership that's willing to admit the mistake that they made, and to improve, uh, improve from those, and to leading this country into a prosperous uh, futures. And, what? And, yeah, mm -hmm. and do not let so, uh, what... millennials suffer because when you let millennials suffer. We are letting our future generation suffer. 
and they need to grow in an environment where we leave them a good legacies and you you know uh to to begin with thank you what so this is what i'm curious about um and we often do this in the pod like we'll spend the first half talking about you know like you know uh, talk about the world talk about politics shoot the shit about that but what i'm really interested in uh these days is like what makes you know as as these things you know as the situation gets worse uh for people you know i think what happens is some people for whatever reason that flip that that switch gets flipped and they're like man i got i got to do something like in any case like you know there's a there's a there's a situation where some people will stand up and say uh i i got i can't i can't just sit back i got to do something uh so you're like this. You've you've seen enough, right? You're like I gotta I gotta throw in. I gotta do it. What do you think makes someone like that? Like what makes you uh, quick to act, right? Like what makes you want to get out there and get on the city council and start pushing? I think it's part of my characters, and it's also part of why I learned it. You know, and with someone with very Asian backgrounds, uh, we were taught a very young age that we need to have a greater responsibilities. And we need to not just look out for ourselves, a person, we need to look out for the, for, uh, for the nation, for our greater homes, for our, you know, and, and just greater social responsibility. We were taught that if we have a, you know, social responsibility, then we can have a broader heart. When we have a broader heart, we can, you know, help others. We can look out for others. And ask, it's the same theory, right? Ask not what you can, uh, what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your countries. It's same kind of uh, philosophy. And just knowing that we are very tiny. You know, if we look at the, you look at to the sky today, we're going to have a very bright moon. The moon actually is so small plan, uh, planet in the whole universe. We, we have this unlimited, um, uh, unlimited universe out there. Our humans, our individual is just that tiny, tiny piece of, uh, piece of atoms. And, and because of that, we need to, you know, think beyond our personal and our physical uh, or our, you know, spiritual, we, we need to be there to look out for other people. And that's why we need to have a, you know, broader kind of uh, goal. So it's, that, it that, sounds like you've always been this way. Is that true? Is that what you're saying? Yes, pretty much. Um, I, I will have to admit, um, me as a trial, I always have this dream of being a superhero. A Superman. <laughs> I always want to accomplish a lot. I always feel that the, our planet could someday be under threat. You know, it can can be a threat com- coming out from the universe. So who is going to be there to protect our planet, right? And you know, for me as an adult, I think I be a part of those responsibility to defend our planet. And you know, I. I, I, I was just dreaming about that when I was a child. So I always have that sense of responsibility. And we are pretty vulnerable uh, than we seem. So I find that really interesting because 
a lot of the people that I've talked to, there's some um, situation that they're put in where they kind of have to make a decision, like some sort of um, stress test or something. And then like whether it was already their character or not to be this way, you know, who knows. But it was like that situation that made them uh, either change their path or give them like give them, you know, or like if they hadn't made any decision before, it kind of um, turned them and set them on a path to do, you know, something big like running for office that you're doing. And I'm wondering, is was there any anything like that in your life where you like realize that this was something that you wanted to do, um, you know, like independent of character or anything like that? Yeah. Thank you. Uh, there were so many moments like that. Um, it's not easy decisions. It's not just one moment thing. It's actually multiple moments that combine that made me want to run for the office. I will give you an example. There was a time when I was trying to file an appeal for one of the driver, you know, and he, he just lost the job. Basically, Uber said, oh, you know, there was a complaint against you, and now we are not going to look into the evidence that you provided. We're just going to deactivate you. So he came to me for help. But I knew the chance of him getting back to the platform, to the Uber, is very nilo. And I tell him exactly what, you know, uh what my experience is, right? And then, you know, he hold on to my hands and he look at me and he has a tear in his eye. I At that moment, I feel I was less powerful than I thought. And that's why I think, you know, being, uh, coming from the working class backgrounds and being able to make a, a policy according and to have this pragmatic approach to the issues that will make a difference to people's life. You know, I could never forget that eyes with tears. And it's just making me very sad. Um, you can feel it because I've been through so many, uh, uh, so many things like that before. So I can feel, uh, I, I, I feel empathy. You know, I, um, you, you know, I just... I, I just can't describe it. it, it it's a very heartbreaking, uh, uh, heartbreaking moments. Yeah, it's very hard for me to, you know, to say it. And, you know, and as an immigrant, sometimes I just been told, just, just keep it to yourself, keep it to your heart, you know. And that's why sometimes it's even difficult for me to tell the story like that, you know, because it's, it, it's number one, it's frustrating. Number two, you know, it's pretty um, tiring um, and, and heartbreaking for me. I want to ask about uh, race and how that plays. What What do you think is happening in terms of the way we think about race, especially Chinese and Asian immigrant communities, uh, which I grew up in 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 a in a in in an immigrant household. Uh, growing up as a kid, and I grew up in a different era from you. I'm a little bit older in America, um, you know, I think we Chinese Americans felt like we were very sort of walled off from other groups. We were very kind of, you know, isolated and, you know, even, even as between ourselves and other immigrant groups, let's say, uh, immigrants from Iran or immigrants from South America or something like that. 
immigrants from India. And the Chinese were sort of like, you know, we uh, cared about our own community and and worried about ourselves. And in now, do you think that that's changing at all? Because my hope is that in a way, you know, Wait, you, teen, you, you is this a, something you a, that yeah. you actually experienced? Or are you saying that this is the stereotype that other people think about us? Oh, no, I think that's that's how it was. Uh, you know, I'm not saying like we didn't, we, you know, it was totally I'm not saying like we just walled ourselves off and didn't care. But for the most part, the Chinese American community, um, it, it, there wasn't a lot of interaction, uh, say, with other immigrant groups. Like we didn't think about things in terms of like, you know, immigrants, you know, in the in the broader sense. Like, do you think that's right? Like, are you, I mean, do other groups do though? I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily. Well, I don't know, but I'm, I, I don't know, I don't know if they do or not. But that's how, that's how we were. Uh-huh. I don't think they did because I don't, I don't think there was a lot of other outreach by other immigrant groups to Chinese groups either, right? I think back then, and I don't think that this was necessarily a problem back then because, I mean, honestly, everyone was just watching out for themselves, you know. And these days, I feel like that's changing because you know, if you, I think, mean, like we haven't even said the word really about race but like when you talk about say uber drivers as a class that's a very diverse group of people um probably pretty immigrant heavy but it's certainly you know i've met chinese uber drivers i've met indian uber drivers i've met arab uber Uber drivers russian you know you name it um so how does that fact how do you think people feel about that and in particular like you know Chinese immigrants these days, is there a broader sense of sort of political connection or social connection to other groups? Because, I mean, in Queens, it's so it's so hyper diverse in this in this uh, in this borough that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen here first, you know, or in a place like Los Angeles, Jess. Mm -hmm. But I'm just curious about that. Yes. So I, you know, driver has the most diversities uh, in terms of immigrants. Uh, they have ninety percent of uh, of driver are you know are immigrants, and we are talking about very 90%. diverse. That's a that's a huge yes. number. It's higher than I thought. Yeah. Yes. But, so. Wow. Yeah. So that's nine. Yeah, ninety percent. Um, and you you know do I think that the thing is getting better? Yeah, sure. You know, um, com- uh, community can reach out to people, and especially with the young people, they are more acceptance. Uh, to the new ideas of cooperation, to the new idea of communication, to the new idea of more kind of like racial equalities, and just knowing that we just cannot stay in one bubble. Ultimately, our destiny is coming to want, and we are all living in this uh, small village where we call home, right? We call off. Um, so do I think that with the situation of, uh, you know, younger generation taking uh, taking charge in in sort of uh, communication, uh, policy making, the things are getting uh, better, uh, better, but it's it's improving uh, very slowly, and I think everyone should after you know training and education, knowing about the background, and having this understanding of of uh, where we coming from, and having that tolerance of racial of uh, equality and we we can have a much better world. I yeah, so to that sense I think it's improving but it's improving very slowly. And it's each and every 
uh, every kind of, you know, uh, people who has sufficient kind of background uh, educated uh, to step out and say something about uh, about creating a more equitable uh, communities. Can I uh, can I ask how uh, how have things been on the campaign trail for you personally? Well, uh, so for me as the first time candidate, it's very difficult uh, because we have to start everything uh, in scratch. We have to consult it um, and talk to, you know, gain me the knowledge, you know, um, you know, but, you know, I'm a fo- just focus on, you know, this campaign um, and then, you know, just paying, you, uh, you know, paying whatever, you know, time, spending whatever time that I'm able to spend. Because I don't have a luxury of not, you know, working. I still have to work while I'm running the campaign, which is making it very difficult for me. Uh, but I still manage everything. I still, you know, doing my best. And, and there's just a lot of the, uh, you know, realistic uh, kind of, you know, things that we need to handle and need to face. Uh, but anyway, like, you know, in the beginning, it's always hard. Like, there's a Chinese saying, Wang si kai tou nan, right? Um, so with the 10,000 things that you do, it's the, you know, at the beginning, it's always hard. Uh, so I think it's a challenge for me. Uh, but I do this, it's not for just because of myself. And that's going to give me a sufficient reason why I should continue this campaign. Why I should continue to fighting for our workers, for our immigrants, and for our small business, you know, owners, you know, who are just here to try to uh, realize the American dream, and try to you know have a better life, you know, and ultimately come down to improving people's quality of life. I think there's a reason, and you know, the life shouldn't be full of sufferings then life can have a more element of happiness and there should be a more meaning to life. You know, that, I, I mean, that's also something I have always wondered. Uh, I always think about life a lot, but I did not become a philosophy professor. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk strategy for a sec, because I'm really interested. I, I've become a lot more interested in uh, local politics because I feel like, uh, well, especially even like with with, with COVID, um, you know, a lot of the you, you look at the federal government and a, a lot of times you look and you say, OK, I don't know if they're really going to be providing a lot of the solutions here. I think a lot of the solutions are going to be happening at the local level. And there's an interesting thing. I don't know, Hailing, if you've you know, I'm sure you've done a, a ton of research into how these elections work and and how to win them. My feeling, my gut instinct tells me that turnout for these elections and, and the election is when next you said like next uh uh is it next spring or when when is the election exactly yeah so it's next june uh i believe is june oh, 22nd twenty one. uh it's a local election right yeah. and i've you know i've looked at numbers before and turnout for local elections is pretty low and I think that's actually kind of good in a way, uh, in in the sense that, like, if you want to win office, if you could just build up, you know, um, a, a base, a motivated base, I don't think it takes a huge amount to win in terms of, like, total gross numbers. But you just need people that will reliably show up that day. 
right? It's not like a national campaign where you're talking about like millions of votes and stuff. I mean, the, you know, a city council seat, um, I don't know what the historical, uh, you know, the historical turnout and numbers have been, but I'm guessing you can win it by, you know, like a few hundred votes, right? That kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, in, ter- for, in terms of margin. Like for Ron's seat, that last election, mm-hmm. it was like 3,000 people total cast. Yeah, a tiny yeah. amount. I mean, that's like a, that's like, you know, the that's like people showing up to vote for school president. Right. So if you could get, yeah. you know, and if you're if you're so if you really narrow it down and you're saying like, look, I'm really interested in the rights of Uber drivers and maybe this other group, and you can build up, you know, a uh, a small but you know, dedicated group that is like motiv- more motivated than any other group out there. Let's say the real estate, you know, the real estate interests or whatever. Um, yeah, to then and right you, you could take and these right seats. now it's actually a really good time to be running because a lot of the people who would vote for you, Hiling, they're still in New York, but the people who, um, you know, probably have like real estate interests or whatever, like they've, you know, went to their summer houses or they're like dispersed throughout the country. So like you, you have your demographic right here and um, they're, they're willing to listen, you know? So like, yeah, this is a good time. And thank you for mentioning that. Um, yeah, so I have always, you know, mobilized a few hundred uh, Uber drivers uh, just for my uh, flushing alone. Uh, you know, I have, you know, uh, kind of helped to contribute, organize one of the biggest, if not the biggest, uh, gig economy workers uprise in <clears throat> in the whole uh, United States. So... So yeah, uh, in terms of that, the number is uh, small, uh, but we definitely need to make sure that you know everyone show out. It's more like a few thousand vote for uh, for me to win these elections. You know, I think this is uh, what democracy is all about. We having these fair competitions. You know, and having uh, giving people a choice. I always believe that when we have a more choice on the table and people are wise enough to pick. Who, uh, who they think can uh, best represent uh, then their interests. Um, yeah, so I think we have uh, the, the city, this administration or the past administration has not been done a good job in educating drivers, uh, educating workers how, you know, to vote, educating the people how to vote and, and just encourage people and telling people the importance of uh, primaries. Yeah, um, you know, uh, can be a democratic primary, uh, other parties primary, and those are the important elections. Some of the candidates just win a primary, and they basically they win the general election because, as you know, the New York uh, uh, state is pretty heavy dead, a uh, blue state. Um, so I would say, you know, everyone who has a citizenship should come out to vote. It's very important that our voting rate goes up. Um, and yeah, for my campaign specifically, I do need some volunteer. I have a lot, you know, people who supporting me, uh, but uh, we need uh, more like a bilingual uh, and, you know, a volunteer. We, uh, uh, yeah, we just just need a volunteer and, and knowing that this, this victory is a people's victory. You know, I want to do something. My campaign, every single one of people that's under my campaign is volunteer right now. You know, they're not getting paid at all at this point. So, 
so yeah, it's can you can you talk a little bit more? You said that you you had done a lot of organizing for gig workers, uh, and 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 saying that you 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 had been part. What did you say? Like part of the one of the bigger gig worker um, movements in the U- U.S. Can you talk more about that? Because I'm I'm super interested in that kind of thing because you know it. We, we, again, like I said, the media talks about this stuff, but it's not something that we really understand as like an actual living, breathing part of society. You know, we think of it in terms of like function. We think of it in terms of like, oh, there's this like economic sector or this labor pool is how we refer to it. Very not inhuman ways. Uh, but when you live in Queens, you know, you see uh, people, you see them as uh uh, everyday people that that you know you share your uh, you share the neighborhood with, and that is uh, a part of society that's not really represented well. Like what you just said there about if you're a citizen, go vote. I mean that may be one of the bigger obstacles. Is like you said, I mean ninety percent immigrants, probably a lot of people on green cards. Uh, you know, not a ton of eligible voters in that pool. So there's sort of like there's an obstacle there as to who can even vote. Um, but that doesn't mean that they're not here, that they're working Americans, that they're, uh, you know, a huge uh, segment of uh, American people. Um, what what was the organizing like? What was that? Uh, how was that done? What, what were the goals? Yeah, so let me tell you a little bit about that Kiki uh, Tanmi uprise. Um, so we organized a, I, I believe, few thousand uh, caravans and we will blot down the bridge. Uh, we actually slowed down um, the traffic. Uh, we went uh, through the FBR. It's not that we wanted to uh, create the inconvenience for the people of New York, uh, but we have to know that it, this chapel is a good chapel. Um, and, and we went to uh, Uber's office. We went to you know, mayor's office to demand, you know, there's more protection for the driver. There's, you know, the minimum pay for the drivers. We actually passed that law, uh, I believe, uh, already, right? Um, you know, there's just so much, uh, you know, thing that we have to uh, to do. And with that organized, it was very successful. We, won, we were like, you know, going in circle on the block, um, you know, it's just consistent oppression of the protests, you know, and sometimes just, you know, our government is giving a hard time for people to speak up, you know, and for those people who don't, uh, who uh, who has a green car, who, had, uh, who has been a resident for 20 or 30 years, they have been contributing a, a huge amount of sales tax, uh, you know, personal federal income tax. A state income tax, they are contributing to the economies and they are paying the money to our government and there's no reason why, why we don't give them a chance to vote uh, uh, to the people who uh, who uh, they can select to represent them. I, I think those are a very important issues that we should look into. And for me, immig- uh, to organize such a huge percentage of immigrant workers is super difficult. Because there are drivers who are free. If they come out to the protest, they're going to lose their court case. So they will never get a green card. And there are people who, you know, who are still kind of applying the spouse for overseas, are free, you know, to come out. You know, just, you know, consistently systematic intimidation on workers and making people fearful 
and to stand up, and that is the biggest issues. It's a, a systematic op oppression on the working people on all aspects, and that has to uh, change. And the change need to start now, and we need that now. And when we come in together, nothing can defeat us. Just Diana, I feel like what he's saying is really in line with a lot of things that we've talked about before. And and for me, that's just the way that if you look at the way uh, we talk about things like immigration reform, if if you look at the political ideas that are that are out there around it, for me, it it all comes down to exactly what Hailing is talking about which is this desire for us to create a tiered society using citizenship as a leverage uh, where we can have a precarious I think the gig economy, like, you know, completely exemplifies this, right? Is a precarious, unprotected class of workers who we depend on uh, to do all the stuff that we, that we assume will get done, uh, but we don't want to give them any protection. We want the labor, but we don't want the people. You know, and I've 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 found that this is tr as true with Democrats as it is with Republicans. Uh, personally, I feel like Republicans sometimes uh, Democrats are often the most dishonest about this because they they talk in terms of uh, you know their policies geared towards um, you know being humane, being fair, being whatever. But ultimately, it comes down to this idea of having sort of a tiered work, a tiered labor system. You know where. Uh, we have an entire tier that we just don't offer protections to. Yeah, I definitely. Sorry, go ahead, Jess. Oh no, I mean, yeah. um, no, Hailin, what do you think? Yes. So, so now we have two categories for the workers. Number one, we have the employment status because you know everything tied down to these two categories. And number two, we have independent contractor status. Right, the employee status emphasize on the minimum pays benefits, you know, some sort of the protection. Um, when we talk about the current independent contractor, we talk about the freedom to work whenever they want. A gig economy worker can choose, you know, when they want to work. If they have to pick out the kids, they can just go offline and they can pick out the kids. But the real issues real fundamental issue with these two uh, category is that they don't have collective bargaining powers. And none of these uh, uh, category has a powers. And therefore, we need to have a third option. We need to have the third category, which is the independent contractor with the collective bargaining powers and giving, giving the power back to the workers. And I, I think having a, a voice at the negotiating table will make a difference. And we need to have a union. And the union, according to the statistic, actually able to bridge the gap between the rich and poor, making a more equitable incomes, making a more equitable um, a society. So we need to push forward this union and labor movement, so that we're able to ensure that we have a, you know, a, a better, you know, you know, better place for the uh, uh for the next generations. Sorry about that. Pra yeah. pr practically speaking, how does that work? Like for Uber drivers, let's say we want 
uh, Uber drivers want to create um, collective bargaining through a labor union. Practically speaking, what are the steps to getting there and what are the obstacles? Yeah, so... <clears throat> Yeah, so so uh, so we can uh, go with uh, you know uh, start with uh, providing the benefit for the drivers. You know, this is one of the kind uh, independent contractor is not supposed to get any benefit. Uh, I think uh, with the effort of uh, uh, of the labor movements, we were able to you know get the law passed with the black funds. Um, you know, to provide some sort of uh, portable benefit for drivers. And this is a, you know, great first step. And I think having uh, having uh, that, we can start a negotiation for the collective bargaining. We can negotiate with the Ubers or Lyft or any big companies about, you know, the benefits, about job protection, about the working hours, about the deactivations, you know, and, and just... Basically everything, you know. I think those those is very creative pattern that has proven in the past and is going to continue to prove that you know this uh, this is going to work because with the, our current federal labor laws, there's almost impossible to unionize, and therefore we need to have a uh, you know the state should step out and do something you know for those workers. You know who is not included in in kind of like, um, you know places like employee, um, and you know, and we need to look out for everyone. And we have such a huge jump of uh, of gig economy workers, and we need to pay a greater attention to uh, uh, to this uh, uh, this group of workers. Yeah, it seems like every Uber driver I've ever talked to has said that. You know the deactivations and 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 the sort of like minimum rating requirements and stuff are like one of the biggest problems, right? Because it seems like there's no protect, like there's no legal framework by which uh, an Uber driver's right to work is protected in the sense that if Uber decides that they want to deactivate you, or Uber says that uh, you know they don't, they you, you know you you haven't uh, had enough, you know the the what what is it out of the five star rating, you don't have you drop below four point five or whatever it is. Uh, you can't or or whatever, or you can't pick up people from the airport or whatever. There's all these rules that Uber puts around when you can work and how you can work, where you can pick people up, et cetera, that there's no law behind it. There's no there's no uh, there's no legal basis for it. It's simply just Uber company policy being set at headquarters as they see fit. Is that the case? Because it's just, I mean, I feel like that's a was a major point of frustration for every Uber driver I've ever spoken to about it. And it does seem incredibly unfair that one company can basically set policy uh, at that level. When, when we leave the power to the company, when we leave the power to, uh, to the, you know, uh, to the corporation who has a fundamental different interest than the workers, our right is not guaranteed. And therefore, we need to have this collective bargaining, and which is to have a voice, to have a driver at the table and to negotiate with the company. And that's what we are aiming for. And that's that's why uh, workers need to, you know, kind of step up in having this collective bargaining powers and to ensure that they have a voice. 
you know, um, for for really long time, the driver just get eliminated and to get unheard, and and to get shut down by the companies, and they don't have any voice, and with uh with the state government, you know, doing something for the economy workers, and having, you know, this collective bargaining, having this sectorial bargainings, we able to negotiate a better future for the workers, and we need to. We're able to create a a, a kind of like a, a path for for gig economy worker. I mean, yeah, I mean, um, so let's so f- continuing down this path of like uh, of thinking about strategy in that case, um, assuming that you're able to organize and create an Uber drivers union, is that um, is that the end of the road, or can there be legislative uh, blocks to that? Uh, I mean, I'm where I'm coming from on that is I'm in California. Um, this year on our ballot on November third, um, we have a proposition, Prop Twenty Two, which is explicitly a Uber and Lyft funded uh, proposition to um, to carve to carve out Uber and Lyft uh, and these other delivery company delivery com- app companies um, from. Uh, a law that California just passed saying that those workers are actually employees. So they're eligible for all the protection worker protections that that uh, categorization provides like minimum wage laws, uh, overtime, uh, some measure of health benefits, et cetera. They're going to be employees. So, um, and this proposition is explicitly to combat that, to create a carve out. Um, uh, so is that, is, is that process, uh, is that pretty much how that works? How that could work in New York as well? So I think New York has a uh, going to have a different law. Um, so so collective bargaining can be done uh, by negotiate uh, having some negotiation uh, between the unions and companies, and you know, and, and this can be under the supervision of a state. Every uh, for every three years, there should be a supervisory kind of process, uh, and this will ensure that the driver or, or the worker to you know to get hurt, you know, and because with our federal governments, we just cannot do 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 much, you know. There's so much obstacle, so much hurdle that workers have to uh to face before they able to become a certified unions, which is very sad. You know, I, yeah, yeah. I think New York has one of its kind, kind of approach. You know, which is a right to bargain. And when we have the right to bargain, and we have the powers, and I think those powers are, you know, very, uh, immediate help, uh, for the drivers. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a great platform. Yeah. To, I think that's a great platform to run on, and and I think it's just something that I'm glad we had this talk uh, because you know it's 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 a thing where uh, a lot has a lot. Again, I think a lot is being said about this. I think a lot out there in terms of like oh the gig economy this the gig economy that, but every time I see it in let's say like a you know I don't know like the Atlantic or something or some other uh, sort of elite liberal uh media outlet it, it it what are they talking about they're talking about uh you know like they're, they're really talking about people doing internships in manhattan or something like that you know like they're not really 
they're not really talking about the reality of gig work, uh, which are, uh, you know, huge numbers of, of immigrant Americans driving, uh, you know, like they're, they're like their life depends on it. Cause it does. And, uh, you know, I guess, I guess for the pod, we, 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 we try and take a different turn, especially as Asian Americans, uh, that there are so many, uh, you know, Asian immigrants that are relying on services like Uber to make a living. Uh, you know, we've, we've, we, we, we've got to not accept the, the typical framing of gig work as something like, you know, oh, maybe that your, your niece or something is doing, uh, you know, freelance writing or something like that. You know what I mean? It's, it's a, it's a much, it just, the, the way, the way, what gig work actually is versus how gig work is talked about is it's just two totally different worlds. So this has been really eye opening. Um, just Diana, you have any, I guess we're at an hour or so. Do you have any like other thoughts to follow up or how are we doing? Uh, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess just continuing down that line, I don't know if asking this just, um, keeps us here for another hour or we just, we just do it, uh, some other time, but, uh, I mean, it's, while while doing research on my own for Prop 22 um, here in California, which I think ties into a lot of uh, what you guys are dealing with, trying to what, what is Prop 22 again? Um, so it's a proposition to carve out, to make an exception for Uber, Lyft, and other delivery service apps uh, from um, a California law that now says that those gig workers are now employees. They should be considered employees under California labor law. Oh, they want to end run that. Yeah. That so it's a carve out. Okay. So it's not a so it's not a it's not a blanket uh, proposition. It won't benefit necessarily all companies that fall under that umbrella. It's specifically for uh, Uber and Lyft. Uh, I believe Seamless. Um, you know the delivery, the big delivery apps that everyone has heard of, uh, and funded by those guys too. Um, I guess, uh, I guess the thing that I'm I'm thinking of is, uh, uh, like this is definitely I I feel like a good direction to go as far as getting immediate material aid to drivers and workers who are who who are being overworked, uh, exploited, um, and and that's only going to increase exponentially from here on out. Um, on the other hand, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a tension that I feel between, um, lobbying these individual companies versus, uh, more systemic, uh, advocating for more systemic change. That's a little harder to deal with, um, as an individual and as someone say running for, for local office, but, uh, it's just always in my head. Uh, I mean, like I, I keep seeing these little signs from the heads of these companies that imply that there should be a, that that they are actually aware of uh, some of the limitations, um, the systemic limitations of this process. Uh, like Uber's CEO Dara Khosrow Shahi, uh, he's proposing um, some kind of like benefits fund, right? A general like I think a slush fund that covers expenses, healthcare, and. Uh, work flexibility and all of that is is just smoke and mirrors right none of that should be taken at face value uh, but what's interesting is he he wrote an, he wrote a, uh, a New York Times op-ed fairly recently where he's talking about our current employment system is outdated and unfair um, like of course it would be it's of course you know a giant company like this is going to try to offload responsibility uh, where it can but in this case like I actually feel like he, he is pointing out something that is very true. 
um, that a lot of these uh, these benefits that we are expecting private companies to offer as a matter of course um, shouldn't be that's that shouldn't be their purview at all. It should be a public. It should be negotiated at the public level. I mean, it's kind I of mean, what yeah, you were I, saying I, with the Facebook thing in the WeChat um, podcast that we did, right? It's like it's not Mark Zuckerberg's job job to police what is and isn't considered abusive language. Like, you know, if it would it would be better for business to not have to worry about that, or to just like there's just these um, federal regulations or like even regulations at the state level that mandate what isn't isn't what is and isn't allowed for companies to work with that, you know, instead of right. having all the responsibility foisted onto these companies and these individuals. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I think it, I think though, like it's not even a real bona fide debate or, or like they're not really having real thoughts about this because, you know, when it comes to, I, I forgot the Uber CEO's name, but like, you know, his only interest and his only, like the only thing that he really cares about uh, is that stock price? See, that's what I mean, right? And See, that's what I mean. That's the only thing that matters to him. And I know when he came on board, Uber like limped to the finish line in terms of their IPO. And I know that you know they had looked at the financial and and the stuff that they disclosed. You know, Uber loses a ton of money, right? And so a lot of what they're dealing with is not even really like you know, oh, is Uber profitable? It's not. It's all about that stock price and you know keeping that afloat so that their early investors. Uh, either don't sue the pants off of them uh, and are able to get out the exit door like, you know, you know, uh, without too much of a loss or with some of the gain that built in if they were like early investors like he's playing that game, you know, like they're just playing the game of, you know, keeping keeping the stock price up for a business that in some respects, you know, never should have gotten as big as it has. Yeah, that's. You know, I think that's part of the problem with Uber is it, it got too big, and I don't not sure it, it, it should be this. Big. Oh, it shouldn't. They don't have a competitive. But, I mean, mode. there's no reason there should. But team, be you're like not hundreds of. Team, you're not rebutting me. So that's what I'm. I'm saying that's no, the, no, no, that's the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I feel like like just strictly focusing on the the moral dimension of what these companies are supposed quote supposed to do for their workers, um, while worthwhile, it does miss the forest for the trees at some level. Because right now it is a, it is a direct adversarial relationship right now, and this is I think this Hailing I think I think it's absolutely correct to point out that it is a adversarial. It it is extremely exploitative, uh, but the solution to that sits somewhere outside that that system that uh, this relationship. Well, it, it's it, you know, there Uber's done this a lot, right? Like every time they've gotten into into some kind of controversy in a city, they threaten to like leave the city. That's their big trump card is like, well, then you won't have Uber. And I think they've threatened the same thing when it comes to California. You know, like if you don't pass Prop 22, we're going to shut it all down. We're, you know, you're not going to have any Ubers in the city anymore. And part of me is like, you know what? We, they should call the bluff. Like, so what? So you really think that, you know, the CEO of Uber is just going to like just give up on California? Like he has his bottom line too. You know what I mean? Like he has he has a lot of stress in that job that he has to manage. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that shutting down in California or exiting that state because they passed the law uh, is really a viable position for him. And I hope they test him on it. I do I, too. You know, the amount of money that they, th they the amount of money that they've thrown into Prop Twenty Two or whatever, they could have been they could have been uh, using that money, uh, you know, to 
to to treat them as employees and, and give oh them i know it's fair benefits you know it's i think it's on like 50 million dollars <laughs> uh and that's and that's just uh and that's just from this year the last several months that's a, that's the fund yeah. they carved out for that right. so no it's an abomination i think i think I, um yeah i think i think they always turn around and be like okay then we're gonna leave and i part of me is just like okay leave i i feel like they should call this bluff because i don't think he's gonna do it i mean he can't i mean he's talking about pulling out of these big i mean Let's face it; they make most of their money off of uh, these big metropolitan cities. They where are they going to go? Where where would they make money? Exactly. Um, exactly. They're already bleeding money, so they're it's it's between a rock and a hard place here for everyone involved. Um, so I, I, this seems like a losing. This seems like a losing game. Um, what what they always make it seem like? Oh, you know, we we the people have to be a little bit you know, a little bit more, uh, sympathetic to, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the bottom line of Uber's business or whatever. I'm like, Oh, that's not what it is at all. It's, it's this guy having been hired to watch out after the investment of early invest, you know, of, of the Saudi billionaires and stuff that had thrown in late money into the game, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Thinking that, uh, Uber is going to become some self-driving fleet by, you know, 2017. Right. <laughs> like what? Right. You know, so it's like, okay, how do you protect their? What? What should we care about that? They should lose their shirt. Yeah, they should. So, um, so I'm curious. I mean, Highland, you want to? You're running for public office here, so I'm sure. I'm sure this is something that you do think about. So that tension between public, you know, at public advocacy, right, um, versus a, you know, versus a private entity. Uh, how do you split your attention and your efforts um, across those dimensions? I think, you know, I think corporations need to have the social responsibility to its workers and the pay of the CEO and the, the regular employee cannot be more than a hundred times, even a thousand times. And there should be a conscience of the companies and there should be a, a moral conscience of a company to treat their workers well. And, and let me give you examples. And there's driver who've been driving for Uber for five years. Every single day, almost every single day, they're driving 10 or 12 or 14 hours a day. And and suddenly, you know, they will get fired from Uber without nothing. They invest so much money in in the vehicle. they paying so much for the for the, uh, the insurance on the vehicle. Um, so they do the repair maintenance and they have to pay all the taxes. And just within one day, Uber say, I'm going to let you go. And and, and, and nothing going to uh, kind of able to change their, uh, change their decisions. It's when a driver walk into an Uber office, they can realize how cruel that Uber's employee are treating most of drivers. They are treating drivers without dignity, without, you know, any sort of human decency. You, you, you just like they feel this. Uh, they treat this driver as a robot, and we need to change that. We need to talk more about the social uh, entry, right? It's kind of like social entrepreneurship sort of the ideas, right? A company who making the money from this community should give it back to this community, should give it back so that their workers able to get treated well, 
you know, and and the wealth of a nation of a city is created by the workers. It's created by the millions of immigrants workers, you know, uh, you know, put into the contact of new cities. The city is built on the immigrant workers, and right now it's a time to take back, uh, and you know, to make sure that people, uh, people who build this city, and to, to be in the charge of this city's policies. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you're talking about when when Travis Kalanick, the founder uh, and former CEO. I mean, there's like a wasn't there a video of him like like literally just screaming at like an Uber driver one night yeah. when he was like completely yeah. drunk. So remember that? Like that's how he is. And you know, when he when highly when you're talking about like, oh yeah, they treat they don't even treat the drivers like human beings. They treat them like they're robots or something. I mean, that was their whole investment thesis. That's why like a lot of these late investors, like the Saudis that got in or what was it, SoftBank, I think, uh, came in late with uh, a, a late equity round before the IPO to save them. Uh, they were they were investing on the basis that they thought that self-driving cars were right around the corner and that pretty soon uh, they could toss all these drivers by the wayside and they would be owners of a robot fleet uh, that, that, that where they could earn profits with zero labor. Um, that was their dream. So that, that literally was their vision was like, we will one day have drivers that are not human. So in the meantime, we'll just, we'll just treat them as if they're not human. You know, uh, I mean, that's the kind of, that's the kind of company we're talking about here. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised by any of that. Yeah, so uh, can you talk us through some of your policy proposals in order to affect those uh, those changes you want to see? Yeah, um, some of the idea is, um, you know, uh, in terms of uh, Uber drivers, um, you know, we wanted, you know, to kind of get reform and to have more regulations. Um, and what we go to, you know, uh, and reg- uh, regulation in terms of, overseeing the companies, their practices, the rental companies, you know, their, uh, the rental companies, um, you know, and, uh, you know, or other agencies, you know, um, and, and what we go and making sure, you know, people are holding accountable, you know, and I have a policy of, you know, creating more union jobs, you know, we need to make sure, um, make sure that, you know, people get paid a fair amount after a day of hard work. Um, and the other things such as a, you know, less crowded schools, you know, and I went to a public school in fashion, it was super crowded and very often we were not able to kind of, you know, kind of ask questions because there are just so many people and sometimes, you know, one or two students can make a noise and kind of, you know, you know, the whole class suffers. So I think we need to have uh, less crowded schools. Right? We need to improve, you know, the public transportation. We need we need to have a redesign of the road. We are we able to have the bicyclists, you know, the bus, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, a, a private car to be able to work together. And we need to redesign our infrastructures. And when you see the highway that we have, right, and, and the local street that we have, and most of this road is built like few decades ago. It's you you know it's it's out of the purpose of our modern times. You know, let's let's bring out the quality of life for people. Right? Um if we're gonna go to Brooklyn from Queens in in the busiest time of the day, you know, it should be 30 minutes instead of one hour and thirty minutes. 
Today I just came from a sunset park coming back to fishing. It's like one hundred uh one hour and thirty minutes drive. And you know and and not only this is very unproductive, it's all also very uh what we call very wasteful for people's energies. Let's give uh internet access for everyone. Let's give uh health care for everyone. Let's give you know, education for everyone, free education for everyone. And in these richest cities of these nations, of course we can do it. And don't tell me that we cannot do it when we are able to do it. But the only thing that we have is that we don't spend in the the money into the right place. We, we oftentimes waste so much money in so many different ways, and that could have been helping people to get on their feet to to help them get their job right and we need to navigate and keep give uh, immigrants a sufficient training so they able to take on the uh take on the job that they ha- uh they want yeah and- yeah I, I i i totally agree with that i think i think in the case of specifically of uber that there it's like such a clear example of the it's really you know a contest of the rights of of the people who are working uh versus the rights of capital versus the rights of the investors uh that want to see you know their you know billions in profit off their early investments in uber maintained they want to maintain that profit and uh that's literally what it comes down to but no one's really talking about it in those terms because we're all you know educated to think that this is some you know, fundamental issue about there not being enough money, there not being enough, uh, you know, uh, you know, oh, people won't be incentivized to work unless they work under brutal conditions and all these lies. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, what what are, what are Uber's uh, executives meant to do? They're meant to protect their shareholder value. That's all it really comes down to. So uh, totally agreed with the platform. I'm glad you're I'm glad you're involved. I'm glad. I hope you get other more people involved. I hope people go run for office, um, you know. And I think in times like these, it's like, you know, you're starting to see people run for, for, for office for the right reasons. Whereas before, you know, people run for office because they want to get involved uh, in corruption. Basically, that's, a, you know, I, I, like, Hylene, you said when you were when you were younger, like, oh, you wanted to be like, a, you know, you, you, you thought about superheroes. You thought about the sort of like, oh, you, you felt like you had social responsibility. In, in certain times, I don't think people would think, oh, if that's what I wanted to do, I would run for office. But that's what's going on now hopefully, uh, just because of how bad everything's gotten. So, uh, you know, best of luck to you, man. And I, and if people want to check out the, um, campaign website, we'll, we'll, it's linked in the show notes, uh, highlingchen.nyc, right. Is the website. Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So give it a, give it a, give it a visit. Uh, you know, if you're in the area, if you're in the flushing area, consider getting involved. Um, you know, I think, I think there really needs to be, uh, you know, Sort of a political renaissance here, so really, really happy to see that. Can we yeah, I just want you in touch with Ron. Like, would that be helpful? Yes. Yeah, and we need a, uh, every person will help uh, this campaign. And I just want to say one last quote: the real leadership yes, is going to show in the time of the crisis. And the leadership is not about sitting around. You know, and in the peaceful time and talking about the report card, talking about the credit, taking in the credit, the real leadership shows when there's a crisis right here, right now. And we need to have those leadership. 
and we need to have people to run for the office across all ages. And people is willing and confident and competent to make the change. I think those are important. And, you know, I strongly believe that, you know, everyone who think that can contribute something to consider run for the office, you know, to take a charge, you know, to uh, to do the thing uh, that is good for the peoples. I, to me, you know, and, and, and leadership, that is what the real important uh, is. And so many times, the business will tell you, right, we made such change. We're going to quit the California because this is a business decision. Why is a business decision? Business decision is putting the profit above everything. But actually, we need to put people first before the monies. We need to invest in our peoples, not to invest in anywhere else, right? Invest in our people, invest in education, invest in health care. Um, and that, uh, that's why I'm talking about invest in the infrastructure, invest in having uh, the mental health being available for everyone. A healthy people, a, a semi-healthy people, a people who, you know, going through a lot in their life, you know, let's invest in them. Let's make sure no one feel lonely. We are in all in this together. And we can overcome, you know, this when we are all together on the same page and really finding the true value of the, what this country is all about. That everyone is created equals. That you have the right and you were given the opportunity to pursue the happiness of your life. Right? We talk about those magnificent wars, but fundamentally, we are not creating a path you know, to realize those happiness. And, you know, I think together we can make a difference. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Haiwing. That was awesome. Um, so, uh, again, yeah, go check out the go check out the website, get involved, uh, and, um, you know, no excuses, right? So, all right. Haiwing, thanks a lot for coming to talk yeah, to us, thanks. man. Really, really enjoyed, really enjoyed the chat. Thanks, I thank you, Jessica, Tim, and Diana. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Okay.